we're going to be reading from Acts 1.12 to Acts 2.13. Um, that's on page 1092 in the Blue Bibles. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Thanks, Didier, for reading. Well, please keep your Bibles open on page 1092 as we uh, look at this passage. Today, we're going to focus, um, we're going to come back to uh, chapter 2 uh, next week. So I will introduce one or two themes from verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2. Um, but we will continue to look at the day of Pentecost next week as well. 
It was great just hearing Didier share something about work and what he's been learning about the Lord through that and how the Lord's led him on that pathway. And I wonder where you are. Maybe you're at a bit of a crossroads at the moment, um, considering what the Lord uh, might be leading you into over this year ahead. I think in a world where there is pressure to make a difference, to, to be the best version of yourselves, to uh, smash your goals, or just simply just do it. Whether that, that, that noise that can be around us, whether it's from what you're watching on social media, what uh, the pressures at work to continue to be hitting targets, to be going above and beyond, it's not surprising that we can feel somewhat inadequate. We can feel a little bit lost or overwhelmed. And if it feels that we're typically not the, the, the go-to choice for the team or the one who might be overlooked amongst colleagues or someone who's just feeling, am I just in the right stream? That This section of Acts here in chapter 1 through to t- chapters 2, I think it is a terrific counter to that sort of pressure, the pressure to be a successful somebody, someone recognized by the world. There's a great antidote here in chapters 1, verses 12 through to chapter 2. We see Jesus delivering his promise with his people to be at work through them, to be on his mission, to find their wholeness, their peace in him. You see, there are no small people in God's kingdom. I've said it before. It's a phrase that comes from Francis Schaeffer. And here we see that fleshed out in the different things going on with the apostles' leadership as a church prepares for Jesus' power to come on them. And last week, as I introduced Acts, I said that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this this preacher who was a, a, a medical doctor, Welshman who who gave his life to medical service and then switched, again, that change of pathway, being um, released into gospel ministry as a preacher uh, and had a phenomenal uh, ministry at Westminster Chapel in London. He said as he was preaching on Acts to his church family, um, live in that book. I exhort you, it is a tonic, the greatest tonic I know in the realm of the spirit. So can I encourage you again, take those words seriously. As we look through this text, be asking God the question, well, how does this rub into my own heart? What do I need to hear? What do I need to act upon in your strength? You see, the Lord Jesus is ascended. He's reigning in his kingdom. He is ruling at the right hand of the Father, and he delights to work through ordinary people. This is a tonic to us. This is what we'll explore this morning. And so let's look at verses 12 to 26 together with our eyes open, our hearts open, ready to be challenged and encouraged. And the first thing I just want us to focus on in this this, uh, section is that we see that Jesus is um, at work. There's a, a choice that needs to be made. And it's an important choice. But we see here his people chosen for his purpose. Now, with his resurrection, 
the gospel accounts are quite clear. There's an astonishment that takes place, understandably. A dead man has been raised to life, smashing the expectations even of those closest to him. And with that resurrection goes a huge amount of joy and hope. A renewed strength, a renewed joy. But with the ascension of Jesus to his heavenly throne room, taken away from his disciples, will they slump into despair? We saw uh, the cliffhanger last week of these angelic messengers coming to the apostles and saying, why are you still staring up at the sky? You know, don't get stuck here. Don't just think, oh, we need you back. No, this is all part of the plan. But will they crash into despair, feeling abandoned? What will they do in the light of this promise that Jesus' power and his Holy Spirit will come on them? Now, it's quite interesting. Luke could have easily skipped these verses. They don't necessarily need to go in there. He could have just gone, right, Jesus up, gone. Now we'll go straight to Pentecost in Jerusalem, the, the harvest festival there, and see what happens. But he takes time to look at the preparations that need to still go on in this 10-day gap between Jesus ascending to his kingdom and Pentecost happening. Verse 12, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, which was a Sabbath day walk from the city. Notice again Luke's attention to detail. This is the historian telling us the, the facts on the ground. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You see, Luke here carefully lists the core group of eyewitnesses who are present. And the group is much bigger than just 11 apostles. It's not all about them. There are several women, which must have included those who supported Jesus' ministry. We read about them explicitly in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. He goes to the um, attention-grabbing detail of saying, these women followed Jesus around and supported his ministry, i.e., they were working, earning money, and making sure he had food to eat. And the team around them were supported. They were doing logistics and operational stuff, without which everything falls apart. But also, Luke mentions, his mum is there and his brothers. Wait a sec. His brothers? Don't miss this extraordinary mention of his brothers, James and Jude, who had not believed in Jesus pre-resurrection. We see that clearly in John chapter 7, verse 5. They're like asking Jesus a question. Why, Why don't you show yourself in a way that everyone can see who you are? And John says, because they did not believe. (laughs) Wow, wait a sec, the brothers are there. Something significant has changed. Here they are, now included in the believing community. A community in Jerusalem of about 120 people, Luke tells us in verse 15. A few more than us here gathered today. Isn't that amazing when you think, wait a sec, there might be 10 or 15 more adults than, than we have here at the moment, and what is, going, what is the Lord going to do with them in Jerusalem? But he focuses, Luke, on two specific things this community did in that 10-day day gap. 
And the first is, as I've put here, it's not chilling out, but it's praying flat out. And I appreciate that phrase flat out is a bit colloquial. It's a bit of a British slang thing. What I mean by that is not necessarily that they're laid out on the floor. They might have been, but that they're going for it, top gear, full of energy, giving themselves to praying. It wasn't just sitting around considering the weather. They were praying together, full on, flat out, giving it everything. And Luke shows us a few things that we can apply to our church prayer life, I think. Firstly, and it's obvious, it was corporate. They're not just praying on their own, but they're coming together. They all made the effort to pray as a group, as a whole group. Secondly, they're united in prayer. The words there in our English translation, join together, they're actually one word in the Greek, which means in agreement, in consensus. It's the same word that pops up a little later in Acts chapter 15, verse 25, at the council meeting, where they're all in agreement. They all agreed. You see, prayer with brothers and sisters in Christ strengthens our unity. Strengthens our heart, our mind, our soul. We desire to see Jesus' will be done together. And we spur each other on in our praying. Personally, I I really get encouraged when when people respond. When others are praying as they feel led. You know, with amens, with yes, Lord. Yeah. Sometimes you get that, mmm, mmm, in some groups. You know, I, I do think, I'm, I prefer the Pentecostal, like, hallelujah. Like, just take it out there. Amen. Come on, Lord. I want you to feel that you can be free to shout those exclamations out as we're singing. As we're encouraging each other with the words that we're praising to the Lord, but also strengthening each other with. That in our prayers, there should be a fervency. Not that we're putting it on for show. It's not about that, but it's a wholehearted agreement. It's like if you were running up a hill together, you would be looking out for each other. Say it was a, you know, there's a fire burning down here and that's the escape route and you're going up there. You come on, come on, keep going. You'd be pulling each other along, wouldn't you? That's, that's what's going on here in the press. They're together. There's agreement. There's consensus. And finally, they prayed constantly. They're persistent. They're persisting together. They're being diligent. Interestingly, Luke doesn't tell us how often or how many hours they met, which is interesting because this guy likes his details, doesn't he? He's just told us how long it takes to walk from the Mount of Olives or whatever. He's given us distances and stuff. He's told us there's about 120, but he doesn't go, oh, and they were at it seven hours a day. I think there's a bit of grace there. He's saying, don't sweat too many of the details. Don't feel a burden to do what they did exactly and think you can tick the box. No, the principle is it's constant. It's persistent. It's diligent. Yes, there was other stuff to get on with during the day. But prayer was a vital preparation that they came together to say, we must depend on the Lord and help each other do that. Getting ready to spread this gospel, holding on to the promise Jesus has given them and said, yes, Lord, when? Make us ready. 
Now, we're in a very different context living here in Manchester in 2024. One could argue our days are fuller in some respects. The apostles and the disciples in first century Jerusalem didn't have electric lighting. They certainly didn't have the internet. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have all the distractions. They had other distractions, probably feeding the donkey, sorting out the chickens, finding the lost goat. Who knows? But there's, there's always stuff in life that could pull them away from praying. So yeah, our context is different. Yes, we're not waiting for the Pentecost moment of the Holy Spirit coming upon us in a life-changing way where we've just seen the ascended, risen Jesus Christ leave for his kingdom, throne room. But as a church family, we need to take seriously this call here, this application of prayer. It's interesting, as a church, we have a monthly Zoom prayer meeting. We put it on Zoom, A, because we don't have our own building, so the faff of trying to find a new venue every time and the cost that takes, Zoom is more efficient because it is also more accessible for us. It's not the best, I know there are people who hate praying on Zoom and breakout groups and stuff, but we have that church prayer meeting once a month, first Wednesday of the month. It's about just over one hour. So in a year, we put on an opportunity in total to pray together for 12 hours. And when I was thinking about it, I'm not doing a guilt trip, but I was just going, wow, Lord, that really isn't very much. It doesn't really speak into an absolute dependence on your kingdom. And then I even know my own heart. I pitch up to that kind of premying sometimes. No. We talk about the Holy Spirit and his ministry and wanting more of the Lord. It cashes out in this stuff as a church family saying we will persevere in seeing God's kingdom come. And one way in which he's given us to do that work is in prayer, interceding with each other. I know prayer goes on all over the place in our life groups. Some of you meet regularly in, in triplets and partnerships to pray together. I want to see more of that. As elders, we want to see more of that. As life group leaders, we want to see more of that in our church. An active dependence, persistence and diligence and joy in praying which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We will be doing more in-person prayer things. One of the things I loved about last term was when we were doing our stewardship season, we had a week of prayer. We figured out different ways in which we could do that, different ways of meeting. We did three days of thanksgiving after. These are small steps for us in the direction of saying we want to be more. We want to be a church where people know our focus is it's not in our strength, it's the Lord's. Prioritizing prayer so that we can take seriously the needs for God's truth to saturate our heart, to renew us through his Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit does that, that's, that's the word being set on fire in our lives. He's the one who empowers us for this work. Have you ever received an email from Edom Edifor, our wonderful pastor elder, uh, he's downstairs with the kids at the moment teaching in kids club if you've ever received an email from Edom read it all the way down to the bottom do you know what's at the bottom there's this wonderful quote it's a wonderful call to action do not have your concert first and then tune your instrument afterwards Didier it's good advice isn't it 
Begin the day with the word of God and prayer and get first all into harmony with him. That was Hudson Taylor, the missionary who pioneered work to China. And reading his biography, Man Alive, his preparations were something else. He was diligent about what he would eat, how he could save money, where he'd put it in order to um, fund the mission trip to China. But his advice there, why would you play a concert without tuning your instrument first? Why on earth, therefore, would you start your day, go through your day, finish your day without that time with the Lord? And we know it makes sense here. But we need the strength of the Holy Spirit and his inspiration to make it a reality day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke tells us not only the praying, but there is a glaring absence that comes out of his list. When you compare it to what the list of the apostles in Luke 6 to what is written here, there's a glaring absence, isn't there? Judas. Judas. You see, the other issue they had to attend to was not covering up a leadership failure. They needed to seek the Lord's choice. This is important business. You see, Judas's betrayal of Jesus was a massive failure of leadership. It was a personal, sinful rejection of Christ. It needed to be acknowledged. It needed to be fixed. And Luke and the apostles have no problem with a full, warts and all, coverage of life in the early church. This isn't idealistic Photoshop stuff. As we'll see later in Acts, the, the records and, of the deceit and greed of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, the neglect and, uh, of of the widows and the disputes that came out of that in chapter 6, Peter's reluctance to go to Cornelius in chapter 10, even Paul's dispute with Barnabas over John Mark in chapter 15. It's all there. What's and all? A people that need the grace of God. The editor of the Daily News, a paper that's now become the Daily Mail, in 1905, uh, published a letter from a writer anonymously called A Heretic. And um, in this sort of like opinion blog post for, for the newspaper, um, the conclusion of the heretic was to ask the reader, what is wrong? Why is the modern person troubled? Why is their pride in their country a mere pretense or a mere stupidity? There were other questions. What is wrong, it concluded. Do you or your readers know? Anyway, one person couldn't resist not answering the question and sent in a letter. It was the well-known Christian philosopher and author, G.K. Chesterton. And he, his answer was this. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is, or should be, I am wrong. Actually, until a person can give that answer, their idolism is only a hobby. Anything that you do in life, until you can see the truth of who you really are, it's going to be fraught with problems. There's an absolute clarity there and a courage that Chesterton gets us to face up to. The Bible's truth that the problem is us. We are the ones who are sinful. The problem is in each of us. And Luke shows the apostles not only facing up to that in the leadership context and this failure that they as a community have suffered and gone through, 
but also they recognize the need for renewal. Sin and failure will be present in the church until Jesus returns. We must therefore acknowledge with humility that it exists and we've got to deal with it truthfully and graciously. That's what we've got to do at Grace Church over the years ahead. And please pray. This is something to be praying about, that the Lord would grow this culture of honesty and accountability right here at Grace Church, right here with the churches we know and love and partner with in Manchester, that that would glorify the Lord and honor him as people were looking in, going, what? how did these guys actually live together and work? That They would see something different that honors Christ. And so Peter addresses the congregation. And did you notice he's quoting there Psalm 69? You can see that in the footnote in your Bible, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, as the foundation of his understanding of what happened with Judas. Now, both of those Psalms are written by King David. You can look them up later. It's worth a read because they are to do with the betrayal of God's anointed king. Both Psalms really look at the grit and grind of God's king being attacked by enemies. They show the Messiah's suffering, yet they also celebrate his victory. And in this inspired application, Peter sees and explains and teaches that God's betrayer is fulfilled in Judas. Jesus is the holy anointed king, the ultimate king. And the person who hands him over, who was his betrayer, ultimately is acted upon in Judas's actions. He is that betrayer. And so it was for God's plan that Judas would lose his place, Psalm 69, verse 25. His name, later, verse 28, it says his name is blotted out of the book of life. He shares the same fate as everyone who turns away and rejects the king of kings. It was God's plan for another to take his place, therefore, in Psalm 109, verse 8. Isn't it interesting, therefore, that in Peter's explanation, in in this sermon, in this application of God's word, he is saying, look, God's plan is not wrecked in in Judas' betrayal. God's work continues. He is sovereign. And Peter will go further into this in chapter 2, that Jesus' death doesn't wreck God's plan. It's part of his saving plan. But we're told as well, in the way Luke records this, and Peter, uh, Luke records Peter's um, sermon, that Judas's death was actually public knowledge. It's out there. That's why we get that description, all the gory detail. Even the field once known as the potter's field, where they would go to get clay to make the pots, is now in Aramaic al-Kaldama, a field of blood. It's fascinating that, that that was out there. That was known. It's memorable. Some critics, Bible critics, have said that, wait, wait a sec, what Luke's saying here contradicts what Matthew recorded of Judas hanging himself. But, but that isn't the issue at all. That isn't the case. What Luke's picking up here is what happens afterwards. Having hanged himself, his body's left, unattended. No one knows where he is. No one's buried him. And when he was eventually discovered and cut down, hits the ground, it's bloated, it's decayed. You can see what happens. It's down here in the text. It's that memorable. It's gory. This ruptured corpse, this unfortunately memorable mess becomes a warning, 
even changes the name of the place. People in Jerusalem know it. But how did they choose that replacement? Was it a job advert on LinkedIn? No. They were looking for an internal candidate with three qualifications. Verse 21, choose one of the men who have been with you, been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they needed a male witness who'd, who'd been there throughout Jesus' three years of ministry. They'd be required to give public testimony about the reality of Jesus' resurrection. They had to have seen him, lived with him, and seen him risen. And there are two candidates, Joseph and Matthias, who are put forward. But the fourth qualification is crucial. Look at Peter's prayer in verse 24. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Interesting, it's reminiscent of, of, of David's appointment by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. It's the Lord who's looking at the heart. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. There's the fourth qualification. Jesus chooses. He's the one who appoints apostles. Apostles don't appoint apostles. Jesus sends his sent ones. And these guys are unique. They had to see the risen Jesus. They were entrusted with the gospel. And they were told personally to go. So who is it, Jesus, you choose? And they cast lots. Well, is the casting of lots unspiritual? It's an interesting one. People usually go here for the whole um, issues of, how do I know God's directing me? How do I discern his plan? Um, is the casting of lots here unspiritual? Should they have waited for Pentecost? Was Matthias a mistake given that Paul's also appointed by Jesus as an apostle later to the Gentiles? No, not at all. No, no mistakes here. This, this was a way in which the final choice of Jesus's is, is, is Jesus's. This is the way in which he, from his throne room, says it's this apostle. The new Israel, you see, needed 12 members on whom the Spirit would fall. They needed 12 apostles in order to witness to the old Israel, immediately showing continuity between the 12 tribes. 12 tribes, 12 apostles turn to Revelation, and you see that there are 12 thrones. There isn't 11, there are 12. As Kevin DeYoung said, there are no empty thrones in glory. There has to be continuity because God, whilst he's doing a new thing, this is an old thing. It's his promises being fulfilled. So casting lots was actually a biblical way to behave trusting God. Joshua arranged the land that way uh, for the 12 tribes. The apostles and the gathered believers see Jesus in such a position of power that he can control something seemingly random in a leadership appointment. Proverbs 16, verse 33, tells us, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And yet, and yet, hear this, it was a unique and unrepeatable event. James isn't replaced, James the apostle, when he's executed in chapter 12, he isn't replaced. This is unique to what was going on right there to prepare them for the Lord's Spirit coming. 
And casting lots is never mentioned again in Acts. Paul doesn't mention it as a device when appointing elders or deacons. He doesn't encourage Christians to spin a coin or check an eight ball or whatever it is. We are filled with the Holy Spirit from the point of receiving Christ. Our minds are being renewed by his Holy Spirit. We have everything we need when it comes to our decision-making. In Scripture, in prayer, with the wise counsel of godly people around us. I remember going to a, um, a, a Bible student when I was in, in my second year at uni, and I was trying to decide, is it youth work or Royal Navy? And I remember coming across this and going to Gavin, Gavin, I know how I'm going to make my decision. I'm going to cast a lot. And he's like, why? Just slow down, Pete. God's given you a mind. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Figure it out. There's real wisdom there. Because actually, the tendency to do the other is to say, oh, it's not my responsibility. When actually it is. Making an informed decision, a prayerful one, one that has reasons and conviction, means when the going gets tough, you go back and say, okay, Lord, this is what you put on my heart, and this is what I decided. I carry on going. And with the counsel of wise Christians around us, we have people to sense check that. So that's how we make our decisions. We have everything here in Scripture. We depend on the Holy Spirit. And we can rest in the fact that Jesus is actively, therefore, leading us in his mission. He's leading his people here, including the, the, the whole of them, the 120, not just the 12 apostles. And so that's where we'll just close. A couple of minutes on chapter 2 then. Because here is the most dramatic part, along with the resurrection that we see of God's work in his church. It is phenomenal what takes place here in Acts 2, uh, verses 1 through to 41. You see, Pentecost was the harvest festival for Israel. Read that back in Numbers 28. It's celebrated 50 days after Passover. That's the name, Pente, means 50. It also became the celebration for the giving of the law at Sinai, which took place 50 days after the first Passover uh, in Egypt, after that rescue. And now it marks the outpouring of God's Spirit on his people. It's an extraordinary, it's a unique moment of both the Passover rescue and giving thanks for the law at Sinai, but the impact on God's people is lasting. What is going on here is unique, and yet its lasting impact and its implications are relevant for us today. And it's interesting, when we think of what happened in Egypt, as Grace uh, already introduced earlier in the service, think about the way God revealed himself. When it was Moses, and he's out in the desert, he's run away from Egypt. How does God come to him, Exodus 3? It's in a burning bush, yeah, fire. But it's fire that doesn't burn. It doesn't consume things. It's self-sustaining. Here, this fire, this tongues of fire, what it, whatever it looked like, like that's the closest description, didn't set people on fire. It didn't burn their hair. It rested upon them. When they, when they went through the Red Sea, what was it holding back the sea as they crossed through? We're told it's, it's the wind. 
the wind of the Lord holding back the water. So hearing sound like wind and seeing tongues of fire resting on the 120, the believers there, this was a sign to the Jews celebrating in the temple that God was visiting them. This is a holy moment. There is something astounding here. John the Baptist said that what would happen with Jesus was a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus was making sure that was happening now. And God's Spirit is now with his people individually, each believer, men and women, not just the apostles who received this promised gift, each touched by God's fire, declaring in miraculous ways the glory of God in human languages that they had not learnt. No YouTube videos, no duo, no quick, you know, intensive language courses, nothing. It was given by the Spirit. Verse 4, all of them filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And what was the reaction of the God-fearing Jews? These people who come to worship, how do they respond in verse 5? From every nation. In verse 6, we're told they were bewildered with God's wonders, hearing their, these mighty deeds of salvation in their own languages, that we're told they were amazed and perplexed. It's like, wow, but huh? What's going on? Others mocked them, verse 13. You see, a spiritual harvest would come in response to Peter's sermon. They're celebrating the harvest. And here is a spiritual harvest waiting to come in. And his sermon explains what is meant. They understood what they were hearing, interestingly. This tongue needed no interpretation. They could hear they're declaring God's praises. They understood what was going on. What they didn't understand was why. How is this possible? What is going on here? We'll get to that next week. But this Pentecost miracle has at least one very powerful and simple point. Now, when you think about it, when any church starts up, just as GCM did in autumn 2004, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year, there's a crucial decision that every church has to make. Not who the pastor is, not what sort of music are we going to have, uh, where we'll meet, what time we'll meet, what sort of coffee we'll serve, who's going to do the kids' work, all of those important things. There's one before that. It's even more basic, but it's rarely discussed. It's just assumed. What language are we going to speak when we meet? There's never any, like, elders' minutes on that. What language will church use? GCM services, the way we communicate with other, is in English. And yes, over the years, we've had Chinese and Farsi Bibles. We try and do our best to help people for whom English isn't their first language. And occasionally, at our Manchester International Outreach Service and our carol services, we have the Bible read in other languages alongside the English translation because it is wonderful to see God's and hear God's truths, his salvation declared in tongues, languages from around his world. But here in Acts 2, on the first day of Jesus' Holy Spirit filling his church, Jesus refuses to choose one language or ethnicity to minister to. 
On Pentecost, Jesus shows the watching world that his good news is for every language, for every tribe, for every people, for every nation. And this anticipates that full harvest to come. Isn't it amazing? This harvest that's going to work itself out over church history up to this day here in Manchester. Wow. That should blow us away. That should help us realize we are part of something massive, life-changing, world-changing, earth-shaking, that we have a part within this uniquely that God sees us and says, you're mine, I'm going to work with you and use you and build you up and send you out in this work, just as Didier was saying in his testimony, to be an emissary, to be an ambassador, to, be, to, to know deep down I'm here because the Lord has me. So, I hope this gives you a hunger. I really hope it starts to give you a taste for saying, Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to walk your way. I want more of your Holy Spirit in my life. Paul exhorts the Ephesian Christians in chapter 5 of of that letter to to go on continually being filled by his spirit, by the spirit. And you know what that looks like? It means living in a manner worthy of the gospel, of the calling we've been given to be Christ, of, of speaking and singing and giving thanks and submitting to one another in reverence to Jesus. That's what it looks like. That's the outworking of being filled. As one Bible writer put it, Bible commentator, the key to the spirit-filled Christian life is found in a paradox. Cultivating an attitude of perpetual emptiness brings with it a perpetual fullness. Do you see that? Coming saying, Lord, I need you, means we will be filled up. Jesus said it like this, blessed are those who who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is what the Lord gives us in himself, in his spirit. Let's pray. I'm going to use a prayer written by a pastor called R. Kent Hughes. It was used when he was preaching on this passage. Here's our cup, Lord. Here we are. Warm us. Fill us up, Lord. May all that you intend to happen in our lives come to pass through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that sincerely for Grace Church, for each person here, wherever they stand with you, Lord. Please continue to work in us and through us. Produce a supernatural joy and praise in our hearts, Lord. Would you do that this morning, wherever we are, with whatever crosses, whatever doubts, whatever stuff we've got going on, Lord? It is not an accident. You are here. You are with us. And I pray that we would enter into the fullness of your salvation and know the fullness of bringing salvation to many around us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.